But Isaiah 9 is where we will be this morning. Isaiah 9 as we begin a new sermon series called The Names of Christmas. You know, when we think about Christmas, we think about Christmas trees and we think about decorations and presents and Christmas music and Christmas lights and all of those things are symbolic of Jesus because Jesus is the reason for the season. But the passage that we're going to look at this morning doesn't tell us about the symbols of Christ. Isaiah 9 tells us about the names of Christ. You know, names are important. Whatever your name is, chances are that for many of you, uh, your parents thought long and hard about your name. I know we thought long and hard about the names of our children because there's a lot of meaning in a name. Our oldest son, Christian, gets his name from my grandmother whose maiden name was Christian. Uh, Caleb's middle name comes from Leah's grandfather. And so we wanted them to carry a piece of our family legacy in their name. Now, that might not be the way that it is in your family, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be that way. But we know that names are important. Have you ever heard about the kid whose parents named him Odd? You ever heard about this kid? His entire life, his name was Odd. His entire life he had to deal with, uh, with comments from teachers and from people that he would meet on the streets. And the teachers, you know, the, the first day of school, he dreaded it because they would look at the, the role and, and they always had some little comment about it. Coaches, teammates on, on the football team and basketball teams that he was on, they all had some sort of derogatory comment about his name and for his entire life he had to endure those those jokes and those comments and those sneers and he was sick of it well young odd grew up and uh, lived a long life but before he passed away he told his family when i die do not put my name on my tombstone i don't want it anywhere on my tombstone I hate that name. So just on my tombstone, just put my my birth date and my date of death. That's all I want. So after a lot of debate, his family reluctantly, after his death, decided to honor his request. And to this day, when, when people pass by the grave and they see the gravestone with the with the, the birth date and the death date and no name, they say, that's odd. <laughs> Didn't do him very good, did it? <laughs> Please join me in Isaiah 9, verse 6, as we read these names that are used to, or they're used by the prophet Isaiah to describe the coming Messiah who would come in the form of a baby. From Isaiah's perspective, This is 700 plus years in the future. From our perspective, it was some 2,020 years ago when Jesus came. So let's look at Isaiah 9-6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. 
He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Father, we pray that this morning as we dig into your word and as we think about these names of Christmas, that God, you would remind us of how great you truly are. And God, we pray that your name would be glorified in all of it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're reading Isaiah 9 in King James or New King James, you will notice that Isaiah 9, 6 lists wonderful as one of the five names of God and not as part of the four names of God. If you're reading other translations like NIV, ESV, New American Standard, Holman, or the New Christian Standard Bible, you will notice that the word wonderful is, there's not a comma between wonderful and counselor, but wonderful is a modifier of the word counselor. And you have to understand that in the original text, in the original Hebrew is this passage, the New Testament is mostly in Greek, but in the original text, there are no commas. In the original manuscripts, there are no verse numbers. Punctuations, verse numbers, all of those things are, 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 are uh, divided up for us by those who translate the, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew into English. They have to convert it because punctuation is different in those languages. But when linguistic, if I could say that, experts, experts on the language tell us that in this passage uh, that the word wonderful doesn't just describe the coming Christ child as wonderful, but it describes the kind of counselor that this Christ child would be. And the Hebrew word that's translated as wonderful is, it is a much bigger deal. Listen, this is a much bigger deal than what we would understand in modern English. If you say something is wonderful in modern English, you may simply mean that it is, uh, that, that it is pleasant. You may simply mean that it is delightful. That, you know, it's a good thing, okay? But the, translate, uh, the, the language used here in the Hebrew shows us that this counselor would be a wonderful counselor and that he would be a marvelous counselor. He's a counselor that would be full of wonder in that it would cause us in his counsel and in his direction and his leadership and his advice and his commands and all the things about him that we would absorb that it would marvel us, that it would Fill us with wonder. We would moder marvel at his leadership, his counsel, and his advice. So, so, so we have to understand when it talks about Jesus, the coming Christ child being a wonderful counselor, this is a big, big deal. Isaiah uses this word again in, in 28, 29. He says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He gives wonderful advice and he gives great wisdom and we see this is consistent with the way that Isaiah describes our Lord. Isaiah calls this coming king the wonderful counselor and in, in doing that he's, he's sharing with us folks some of 
God's character. He wants us to understand the character of this Messiah and what kind of king of kings that he will be. You will be called wonderful counselor. But what does it mean for someone to be a wonderful counselor? Because the truth is, people don't typically seek the advice of a professional counselor unless they sense that something could be wrong. They, they, they see a counselor typically, you see a counselor when you think you may need help with something. You may need help thinking through something. And so Isaiah reminds us that when he calls Jesus the wonderful counselor, listen, that should remind us that, that Jesus wasn't sent to minister only to those were perfect in fact in Luke 5 Jesus says the healthy don't need a doctor but the sick do I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance I, I've said this before but I, I think that many people make the mistake of thinking that they have got to get it all together to come to God and just the opposite is true you come to God and you let him put it together. There is a difference in perspective there. Jesus says, I didn't come here just for healthy people. I came for those that are sick, those that are in need. You know, when we struggle in life, the enemy of God often whispers little lies and deceptions in our ears, doesn't he? Little things like, hey, you are a failure. Hey, you're worthless. Nobody can use you for anything. God can't use you. God doesn't want you. You might as well give up. It's never going to happen. The enemy will whisper in our ear, stop trying at this Christianity thing. You know who you are. You are who you are. Your truth is your truth. You go live your truth. Those are the things that the enemy of God will whisper in our ear. And Isaiah reminds us that you don't have to be perfect to be loved by a perfect God. You don't have to be perfect to be loved by a perfect God. He is a wonderful counselor. And if you will seek his counsel, he will guide you. You also got to remember that wonderful counsel is not going to benefit the person who never hears it, never seeks it, and or the person who just flat out ignores it. See, he is a wonderful counselor. He will counsel you. He will lead you. He will guide you. You have to want to be guided. You have to want to be led. You have to be willing to follow that counsel. So this morning, I want to talk about how Jesus is the wonderful counselor. First thing I want you to, to understand this morning is that Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he is compassionate. He is a wonderful counselor because he is compassionate. We can see his compassion all throughout the New Testament. In every one of the Gospels, we see specific examples of the compassion of Christ. In Matthew 14, we're told that as he stepped 
ashore, he saw a huge crowd and he felt compassion for them. And he healed their sick. The phrase that's translated that he had compassion on them uses a word, this word for compassion, that tells us that when Jesus saw this huge crowd and he saw their need, he saw that they had great need he saw that they were at the end of their rope it says it shows us that he had genuine gut level deep concern about them the greek word for compassion means that he was deeply moved by their need these people were at the end of their rope here in matthew 14 they had nowhere else to turn they were between what we would say uh, between a rock and a hard place. And they had nowhere else to go. But Matthew 14, it tells us that Jesus had compassion on them. And if you go on in that same chapter in verse 15, you'll see that when evening came, the disciples approached Jesus and said, this place is a wilderness. It's getting so late. He said, let's send the, they said, let's send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food. You see, the disciples were using some logic, okay? The disciples, uh, it's not that they didn't realize these people had a need. They thought, I'm sure they thought, hey, we've done all we can do for them today. We've done all we can do for them at this point. If they stay here and they don't go back to town, they're going to expect us to feed them. And we don't have enough money and we don't have enough food. We don't have enough supplies to feed them at this point. And so it just makes sense to send them away so they can get fed. Because if they stay and they expect us to feed them, then we're going to deplete whatever, what little food we do have we will get nothing, Barely, hardly anybody will get anything, and everybody will still be hungry. I mean, it makes sense. I don't think the disciples were trying to be, uh, to be hard-hearted in that. I think they just were not thinking about the fact that they were sitting there with the Son of God who had all authority in heaven and earth. And if Jesus wanted to feed the 5,000, by golly, he could feed the 5,000. And so Jesus says in verse 16, they don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. Their wonderful counselor is compassionate. The first time that the word that's translated as compassion is used in the New Testament is in Matthew 9. It's a passage that in my Bible is titled, The Lord of the Harvest. Let me read you part of that passage. He says, uh, it says, Jesus went to all, those, all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out, like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Again, Jesus is deeply concerned about these people. He had great 
compassion. We know what it means to be deeply concerned for people. Many of us have been deeply concerned about friends and loved ones, you know, hoping and praying that they would avoid this virus. And should they uh, contract a virus, hoping and praying that they would not have any major complications that we hear about so often in the news. Uh, you see, when, when you're deeply concerned about someone, it means that you're concerned about their well-being. You want what's best for them. Jesus wants what is best for us. So when, so when we understand that, we understand that this compassion of Jesus is a demonstration of his character as a wonderful counselor. And we understand that that the counsel that he gives to you will be heartfelt. It will be considerate. And it will be sympathetic. Because scripture teaches us that Jesus himself endured hardships. Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest, that's talking about Jesus by the way, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now, Jesus may not have dealt with the specific issue that you deal with, but he has felt the same pain that you have felt. He has experienced similar difficulties that you experience. He has experienced the disappointments of life. He has been betrayed by others. He has found himself uh, moving in a particular direction only to find what we would consider to be a roadblock in life. Like when he was teaching in the temple and he spoke truth and they were reading from Isaiah and he says, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. I'm right here in front of you. And they said, get out of here. They chased him out of the temple. And they were ready to stone him for what he said. He was doing the right thing. Listen, Jesus has been through it. He is compassionate and he cares about you. And the counsel that he gives to you will have heartfelt consideration and sympathy. It's not that he doesn't know what's going on. Folks, I believe that Christian compassion is what draws many people to Jesus today. It shows them that he cares. He cares about them and the fact that he cares about us. And because he cares about them and he cares about us, we as believers and as the church and as disciples, we care about them as well. Those who are lost and hurting. See, Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he's compassionate. But number two... He's a wonderful counselor because his perspective is supreme. His perspective is supreme. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Most people don't seek to meet with a counselor unless they are open to, at least they don't make those appointments themselves. I'm sure somebody has made an appointment for them. 
but many people don't make that appointment themselves and don't seek out that counselor unless they are open to the idea of receiving counsel. And part of that counsel will be hearing a different perspective on an issue or on a, on a particular problem. Imagine going to see a, see a counselor and paying the money to sit down for an hour with this counselor. And you sit down with this counselor with a heavy heart. And the whole time you're just pouring out all the things that are wrong and all the, all the things you struggle with. And you're just letting that counselor just see how messed up things really are in your life. And you get to the last few minutes of that session and you stop talking and the counselor says, boy, that's tough, you know? And the counselor says, you really are. You've got some problems. Well, we'll see you next week. Imagine that. You're like, well, wait a minute. Like, that's all you got? Look, I just told you about all the things that have been going on in my life, and all you're going to say is, see you next week? I mean, really? I, I mean, I didn't come here just so that you would know how messed up my life is. I mean, I know how messed up my life is. I already know that. I need some help. I need someone to give me some perspective on what is going on. I need you to help me see things differently. Now, to be fair, if you use up all your time in your counseling session, there's not a whole lot that the counselor can say, but I'm sure that there's probably, from a compassionate counselor, probably going to be more than, tough luck, kid, come back next week, right? Jesus, here's the thing about Jesus. Not only is his perspective different than ours, but he has supreme perspective. So what do you mean by supreme perspective? What I mean is there is no better opinion on any issue than the opinion of Jesus. There is no better way to view a particular issue than the way that Jesus views that issue. Whether or not it's popular or convenient, God's viewpoint on any issue is always, is always better than the perceptions of this world. I found this quote somewhere and I thought this was good. It says, don't worry about other people's opinions of you. God never told you to impress people, only to love them. God didn't tell you to impress people. Now, are we tr to try to impress God? Are we to try to bring Him glory and to bring Him delight? Absolutely. But He didn't tell you to go impress everybody else. He just told you to love them. The ministry of Christ would reveal to many people in that day a seemingly, seemingly new perspective on many cultural issues. His perspective on women was different. He treated them as equals to men. He regularly addressed women directly in public, which was something that was very unusual for men to do. That was considered um, uh, inappropriate in that culture for a rabbi to address a woman in public. And that's why the disciples were amazed to see him talking to the woman at the well in John 4. We know that Jesus spoke freely to a woman who was taken in adultery. We see that uh, we see through through the Gospels that 
uh, that Jesus gives a lot of attention to to women and in, uh, in their role in sharing the gospel and spreading the good news. We know that Jesus spoke publicly with the widow of Nain. Uh, he spoke publicly and directly to the woman with a bleeding disorder and the woman uh, and a woman who called to him from the crowd. Jesus addressed this woman. There was a woman who was bent over for 18 years. She probably had some sort of uh, some sort of degenerative back disorder. I'm not exactly sure what was wrong with her, but Jesus addressed her. He addresses a group of women on the route uh, on his way to the cross. And when he talked to women, he spoke in a thoughtful, caring manner. He was sympathetic to them. Jesus addressed the woman with a bleeding disease very tenderly, and he calls her daughter when he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. He referred to the, the woman bent over um, with the back problem as a daughter of Abraham, which puts her on the same level as a son of Abraham or as his brothers from the line of Abraham. And so we know that as Jesus ministered, he, he changed a lot of perspectives, but his perspective was supreme. It wasn't that his perspective was different. It's that his perspective was the right perspective. It was radically different in many ways than what some people were used to and what they had experienced in the past. His perspective about marriage was different. Matthew 5. He talks about that. If you read through Matthew 5, you see that, that Jesus is going through and addressing many misconceptions and distortions of, of Scripture. And, and, and he's, he's addressing, he's, what I always say is that he's closing up loopholes. There are certain loopholes people have identified and said, well, it doesn't say exactly that I can't do this. And this is what it says. Someone got jumped through that hole and he's sort of closing those holes. And one of the things that they were doing in that day is that they were taking a command of Moses, an instruction from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Jesus refers to that. He says in Matthew 5, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's been a lot of debate over what some of those, with the implications of that verse and, and other verses like it, but here's one thing that we cannot debate and one thing that is for sure. Jesus shows us in Matthew 5, he demonstrates to the people of Israel that had misconstrued the words of God and he says listen marriage is a sacred vow it's not a contract of convenience because listen the truth is is that even the best of marriages will face difficult days and they will face times when it is not very easy to stay married and Jesus is saying listen the way you guys are doing this you just got it all wrong because what they would do is a man would, would marry a, a, a woman and then if maybe she stopped cooking his favorite meals or maybe she put on some weight after she gave birth to a few of his heirs 
Or maybe if she got some sort of attitude with him and actually expected him to treat her with some uh, manner of respect, they would say, hey, woman, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you away. That's, what, that's literally what it means. I'm going to send you away, and I'm going to write you a certificate of divorce because, quite frankly, I don't like you right now. And, and just in, in, no adultery, no, no major issues, just, just, hey, I quote, fell out of love. I've said this before and I will say it again, you don't fall out of love. You either, you, you choose to love or not love. But Jesus says, look, there are some, some situations where it is appropriate and acceptable to divorce. And so he's saying, so I want you to understand Marriage is a sacred vow. This is what he's getting at in Matthew 5. You can't just flippantly come and go and be like the hokey pokey with one foot in and one foot out. But there are certain situations that are severe enough to warrant for God to allow for you to separate. But he says, and he, and he, he makes the point to say, even in that particular situation, do it the right way. Do it the right way. You know, Make it official. Write that certificate. If, 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 if things come to that, then, then yes, do it the right way. But the point of Matthew 5 is that marriage is sacred. He wants them to understand. Their pers- they had the wrong perspective. And he wants to set that right. Look what he says in Matthew 19. He says, haven't you... Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female, and he also said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. He's explaining, further explaining here in Scripture and in in the book of Matthew, go to Matthew 19, a little further in the book, you see that he's expounding on the sacredness of marriage. Jesus' perspective on marriage is this. When you read those two verses, you put them together, you think about what is God's perspective on marriage. His perspective on marriage is that marriage is a sacred and holy institution that's created by God, and it's demonstrated by the creation of of two distinct genders. He's saying, he's saying the fact that you have two genders in nature is a very is a very demonstration that men and women are meant to be together. And as we read scripture, we see that that, that happens through the institution of marriage. marriage. See, Jesus had a different perspective on a lot of things. But more than that, his perspective wasn't just different. It it wasn't just better. It is supreme. So his counsel, his outlook is supreme on any situation. We see that Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he is compassionate. He has supreme perspective. Number three, he upholds truth. John 8 tells us, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We understand that in John chapter 8 as well, if you go down to verse 44, as he's talking to some other folks, he says, you 
are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. It says the devil, that father, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45 of John 8, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 47, the one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you aren't from God. See, the reality is, is that a good counselor, a wonderful counselor, is the one that's going to tell you the truth. The problem that we see in our culture with, 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 with many instances of counseling really doesn't have, I mean, I'm sure there are good counselors and bad counselors out there. Uh, but, you know, one of the problems that I see with people, whether it's they're going to a counselor or they're going to a preacher, is that they, they go to somebody and what they really want, they don't necessarily really want a new perspective. They don't really want to know what the Bible says about something. They go to the preacher. What they really want is for you to rubber stamp something that they've already decided to do. What they really want uh, many times is, is, uh, is just to come in and say, hey, counselor, this is my plan. Now tell me I'm right so that I can move forward with it uh, with a good conscience. I know people who would see a counselor because maybe they knew something wasn't quite right and they would go and see that counselor, but they weren't really ready to or willing to receive counsel. They weren't real, really willing to have their thinking challenged. And the first time that that counselor would challenge this person in their thinking or on, on an issue or counsel them to change a course of action to do something they really did not want to do, well, you know what time it is. It's time to get a new counselor, right? They didn't really want a good counselor. They wanted an agreeable counselor. I just want somebody to say, hey, just tell me what I want to hear. Just tell me that what I want to do is okay, but a, a good counselor is one that helps you and wants you to see the truth. Recently, I, in some research, I saw an article in, uh, in the Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences. I'll say that three times, okay? It recorded a case of a 20-year-old young man who thought he was a werewolf. So periodically, I'm assuming maybe on a full moon, he would be seen crawling around on all fours, oh, howling at the moon, abruptly running and growling at people. In those moments, people that saw him said that, it, that he literally seemed to think that he was a wolf. And it says that his behavior, the behavior of walking around on all fours, seemed to make him happy. I was shocked, by the way, to learn that medical professionals put him in a mental institution to treat him for his issue. Because in today's uh, sort of way of thinking, if it makes you happy, well, then you just go ahead and do it. But see, people realize it's not good for this guy to be running around at people. They, they treated his condition. They realized he had schizophrenia, which caused, which was some part of what caused him to begin to uh, hallucinate and begin to have these psychotic episodes where he believed 
that he had turned into a wolf in these episodes where he would crawl around. They were able to treat him with medicine. They discharged him. He seemed to be stable. Everything was fine. But what kind of counselor would, would see somebody coming in on all fours, howling like a dog, you know, saying, hey, uh, you, you got some Purina for me because I'm kind of hungry. You know, someone coming in saying that, that they growl at the, at the mailman and that they run and try to bite the UPS guy when he delivers a package. What kind of counselor would say, hey, that's totally normal. That would be a very good counselor. That'd be an agreeable counselor. Oh, that's okay. Does that make you happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, I'll tell you what. You know what you need to do next time? Go run out on, on the middle of Interstate 40 when there's a bunch of trucks coming by. Look, yeah, 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 that's a great idea. Uh, that's not a good counselor. That's, that's, that's an agreeable counselor. That's not a good counselor. Now, I, I get, I've heard that there are situations, there's a time and place, you can't always challenge somebody's reality when they're in that, in that state. But a good counselor is going to want to take a person through a process that's going to help them see what is true. Jesus is a good counselor because he wants you to see what is true. Listen to me. The, the devil will lie to you. Some of his most effective tactics is through lying. I saw this other quote. I want to share this with you. God's truth is not subject to human opinion. What is true in the eyes of God is true. That is the universal 100%. You can take it to the bank. It is the truth. Whether man affirms it or not, it is the truth. And I want to share a couple things with you this morning as we get ready to wrap up. The truth is that until you have a daily walk with God, you will not enter into heaven. Unless you have a a, a, a faith walk with God. You will not enter into heaven. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. And unless as a believer, unless you're walking with God daily, your life will never be complete. The truth is your marriage will never be complete. Your relationship with your children or your parents, your co-workers will never be complete. The way you view yourself will always be distorted. Listen, life cannot be complete without Christ. That's how God made you. The only thing that can fill that void and, and navigate your life around truth is a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's a good and wonderful counselor because he tells us the truth. But part of that is holding us accountable to that truth. And that's the last thing. He's a wonderful counselor because he holds us accountable to the truth. I think about the time when the disciples were supposed to be praying in the garden and they fell asleep. And Jesus said, uh, Jesus says, why are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake from, for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus could have said, oh, you poor thing. Bless your little soul. You're so tired. Y'all have had a, y'all just had such a horrible week. You just go ahead and lie back and take a nap. But that's not what he said. He held them accountable. He says, hey, get up. 
You need to be praying. There's big stuff happening here. We're at war, spiritual war. You need to be praying. Good counselor tells you the truth. And he holds you accountable to the truth. Have you ever met somebody who everything in life was not their fault? Nothing was ever their fault. You know, everything, all their problems were because of how they were raised. All their problems were because of the environment that they lived in. Nothing was ever their fault. And listen, look, I get it. We are impacted by our, by our heredity. We're impacted by our environment. We're impacted by how we are raised. I'm not saying that we are not. But a wonderful counselor is going to tell you that that cycle of whatever that brokenness might be, that cycle can be broken. Okay, It's up to you to, 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 to submit your life to God. And let God break that cycle of dysfunction in your life. Listen, I, I grew up in a home with a father who was an alcoholic. And that means that genetically, I'm, I am more susceptible to addiction than the average person would be, which is yet one of probably a, a jillion reasons why I stay away from alcohol. But, you know, that, that my dad's issues with alcohol... Uh, caused a lot of problems in our family, it caused a lot of dysfunction at times and some very unhealthy situations. And sure, that impacts me as it would anybody else. But the God that I serve helps me to know that I don't have to live in the past, or that He has a future ahead. My former pastor said, We are not puppets on the end of a string of heredity and environment, we make our choices and we are responsible for our choices. Folks, you're responsible for your life and your decisions. No matter what someone else has done to you, no matter what's happened to you, you are responsible for the choices that you make. And those are things that a wonderful counselor would say to us. Those are things that a wonderful counselor does say to us. And so as we celebrate the Christmas season, let us celebrate that God did send us the Messiah, born of a virgin, to die on the cross for our sins. He is Lord. He is King. And if you don't know him already, you can today. His name is Jesus, and he is a wonderful counselor.